Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Did you know that over 95% of all businesses fail within the first 10 years? By listening in to what Bob's guests have to say, plus direction from Bob Pritchard himself, it's our intention that you won't be among those statistics. Now, here's your host, Bob Pritchard. Hello, world. Welcome to the 351st episode of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business Channel. We're broadcasting in this our eighth year across the world from our studio on Hollywood Boulevard in Los Angeles, where absolutely everything happens and the weather is, as usual, perfect. Do you know the definition of absolute insanity? Let me tell you. Starting August the 1st, in America, in all 50 states, you can legally 3D print a gun. Last week, the Department of Justice made it legal to produce guns with 3D printers in a settlement with gun printing startup Defence Distributed. It's your First Amendment right to print a gun. How fucking stupid is that? The ruling's a result of a multi-year crusade spearheaded by ratbag gun rights evangelist Cody Wilson. And it allows Defence Distributed to post on the web detailed blueprints for trace for ghost guns. They're untraceable, they're unregistered, and simple do-it-yourself for anyone with access to a 3D printer. Now, you can buy 3D printers for a couple of hundred bucks now. Cody Wilson, who's the creator of hate-based crowdfunding platform Hatreon and one of the perennial most dangerous people on the internet, founded Defence Distributed in 2012 to make homemade weapons available to everyone. But after Defence Distributed's Wiki Weapon Project produced its first functional firearm, which was called the Liberator, in 2013, the Justice Department forced him to remove the gun's blueprints from the internet. Wilson decided to appeal the State Department's ban. He argued that posting digital blueprints of automatic weapons online was simply an expression of his First Amendment right of free speech. And the Department of Justice ruled in his favour. God, what'll be next? Pedophilia. Oh, it's my First Amendment right. Give me a break. Now, thanks to improved 3D printing technology and this new law, Turning digital schematics into actual guns requires only an internet connection and a 3D printer. And for do-it-yourself gun lovers without 3D printers, Defence Distributed produces a specialised machine called the Ghost Gunner. Now, the Ghost Gunner just produces guns. And it represents the end game for gun control, not just in the United States, but everywhere in the world. Just think, everywhere in the world that's got really strong gun control is now going to have 
citizens all over the place producing guns. I can't think of anything more stupid. So with nothing but the ghost gunner, an internet connection, a few raw materials, anyone, anywhere in the world can make an unmarked, untraceable gun in their home or garage. So Tuesday's ruling has totally changed gun control laws. Now we've got pretty strong gun control laws in California, which has kept crime by guns down in this state. But now, every ratbag in our near 50 million population in California can just go print a gun at home in the kitchen. I just can't believe how ridiculous this is. After winning the settlement, Defence Distributed relaunched its comprehensive gun encyclopedia, which is called DEFCAD, which features guns ranging from AR-15s to Berettas. The website's open for uploads and will allow for downloads starting in August. To reduce the number of shootings in America where, as we all know, gun deaths are 25 times higher than in any other high-income country. Politicians have been debating ways to control gun ownerships and have been talking about things from background checks, bans on assault weapons, minimum age requirements, the red flag warning systems, all of which are great and all of which help keep gun crime down, but all of which are absolutely impossible if every anonymous lunatic can download and print untraceable garages in their <laughs> untraceable guns in their kitchen. You think about it, the do-it-yourself gun revolution create could create a million untraceable guns. So the future of guns look a lot like the present situation with drugs. You know, the dark web hasn't hurt Big Pharma, much less destroyed it. Rather, it's expanded the reach of hobbyist drug makers and small labs and enabled the shadow world of pharmaceutical R&D that feeds transnational black and grey markets for everything from penis enlargement pills to synthetic opioids. Ridiculous. Gun control efforts in this new reality will initially probably focus more on ammunition as policymakers try to limit civilian access to weapons in a world where controlling the guns themselves will become impossible. I guess that first, governments will probably look to gun control schemes that treat guns like controlled substances, you know, drugs and alcohol. The focus will shift to vetting and permits for simple possession. So we'll likely give up on trying to trace guns and ammunition and focus more on authorising people to possess guns and on catching and prosecuting people that are unauthorised in unauthorised possession of guns. <laughs> we know how that's worked. There's 230 million guns or something in America now and a hell of a lot of them are not registered. And how many did the cops catch? Almost bloody none. So you'll get the 
you get a firearm equivalent of a marijuana card from the state and it won't matter if you bought your gun from an authorised dealer or whether you made it home in your kitchen. Now, we all know how well governments have controlled opioids. They've done a great job with that. It's a fucking disaster. It's the biggest epidemic that's ever hit this country. But now, everybody can print a gun. You know, people are taking opioids, they're killing themselves. If you've got a gun, you can kill 50 other people. And unless the authorities lift their game, which seems highly unlikely based on their previous track records, all 50 states in the United States are likely to resemble Chicago. As I said earlier, it is absolute fucking lunacy. Having said that, <laughs> do you get my daily 30-second re-business newsletter? We now have about 1.7 million daily subscribers. It'll take you just 30 seconds to subscribe. Go onto my website, bobpritchard.com, and just enrol. Just give us your name and email address. Every day we tackle the different subjects from 3D printing guns, for example, to advances in medicine, new apps, new technology, subjects like Hyperloop, autonomous cars, blockchain. And today's newsletter actually is about the secret reason that AT&T had for wanting to get its hands on Time Warner. And this is really smart, actually. They want to get their hands on Time Warner because it wants to use 5G to get more people to watch TV shows while riding in self-driving cars. They figure that autonomous cars will increase viewership by up to 1,500 hours a year. So the 1,500 hours you're sitting in your car driving, you're now going to be watching some form of screen. So to keep abreast of all the new developments in business and technology, and ensure that you're able to compete in this ever-competitive world, you should get the Bob Pritchard newsletter. So just go to bobpritchard.com and enrol. And if you wish to unsubscribe at any time, and honestly, every month we only get one or two unsubscribes from hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of new subscriptions, but it really is, it takes about two seconds to unsubscribe. This is interesting, I thought. So much for Kentucky. We hear about how fabulous Kentucky is for whiskey. India's the new whiskey capital of the world. For the fifth year in a row, India-based Officer's Choice was crowned the world's largest selling whiskey with a total of 31.5 million cases. That's 378 million bottles. Woo! So... Kentucky isn't in the race. And according to a new report by market research firm IWSR, of the top largest booze brands, the South Korean soju brand Jinro whiskey with 76 million cases, produces more than five times that of our Jack Daniels. So... 
they're not good for the booze industry. And last week was an absolute disaster for American retail. Last Thursday, Build-A-Bear was set to celebrate Pay Your Age Day. A great idea. This was in the US, Canada and the UK. You could purchase a stuffed animal and pay only your age. So if you were five, you go in and you buy a Build-A-Bear, stuffed bear, and pay only $5. And if you're an adult, irrespective of how old you are, the fee was capped at $29. And, you know, the bears, they're great stores, I love them, but the bears usually fall in the 20 to 20 $35 range. But Build-A-Bear was forced to shut this pay-your-age day down after huge crowds and madness overtook stores across the US. Stores were just absolutely overwhelmed with customers. Build-A-Bear had large lines stretching throughout malls and seen that shoppers described as absolute madness. Chaos overtook the stores and malls right across the United States. Build-A-Bear posted on Facebook at 11 a.m. saying they've closed the lines in all U.S. and Canada stores. This is 11 a.m. in the morning. And they um, said that some people are disappointed. Jesus. Disappointed, people were waiting five to seven hours for Build-A-Bear. <laughs> this was well thought out. This was brilliant. So many customers were infuriated and were given a $15 coupon. The question is, how will Build-A-Bear make good for all these people are just pissed off? Now, adding to the Build-A-Bear fiasco, Amazon Prime's day of very deep discounts on millions of products for Prime members resulted in the server crash. The retailing giant website experienced outages on desktop and mobile right after the sale began. Many shoppers hoping to score deals were instantly met with photos of cute dogs. Now, you know, if you go on to Amazon Prime, when there's a standard error, you get cute dogs. <laughs> well, they had a lot of dogs. That resulted in a firestorm of complaints on social media. And the issues also affected other Amazon products and services. Amazon's Alexa, Prime Video Services and Amazon Web Services also went down. Amazon was expecting sales of $3.4 billion. The actual sales will be very interesting, likely to be significantly less than that. Now, my guest today is James Isaacs. He's president of Sayara, and he's responsible for all customer-facing operational aspects of the company on a global basis, including marketing, business development, sales and pre-sales, professional services, domain consulting, customer success, education and training, support channels and customer satisfaction. Wow, you must work about 30 hours a day. And I'll be back with James after this short break on the Bob Pritchard Radio Show, which has been broadcast across the world this week from the technology and entertainment hub of the world, Los Angeles, California. I'll be back in a minute.
Do you want your business to achieve results you never thought possible? Bob Pritchard is recognized as the business leader's advisor and has 30 years of experience as a straight-talking troubleshooter for Fortune 500 companies and SMEs across the world. Whether you need a checkup across all departments of your business or simply want to improve marketing, advertising, performance measurement, or some other area, Bob Pritchard will work his magic so you can blow away your competition. Bob Pritchard is also one of the most in-demand speakers in the world. Over 1,500 clients on five continents and countless standing ovations are a testament to how he changes the fortunes of business. Pick up Bob's new book, Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, at your nearest bookstore or visit Bob's website at www.bobpritchard.com. Remember, if you want to be successful, call Bob Pritchard now. Worldwide phone numbers and more information can be found at bobpritchard.com. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking Radio Show. Over the past six years now, we've given you insights into the lives of over 320 of the world's most interesting people. We, uh, we've spoken about what they do, what challenges they've faced, and we try to work out what it is that makes them tick. You know, it's, it's really hard to be successful today and make your mark in the world. The failure rate of um, new companies is around about between 95 and 97%, which isn't good. So what is it that makes those 3% of people successful? So the aim of this segment is to introduce you to people that are involved in interesting and different roles and learn what their keys to success are. You know, there's no point in us going out as a new business and repeating the mistakes that other people have already overcome. I mean, that would just be plain bloody stupid, wouldn't it? So um, we can learn from these segments. And the other aim of this segment is to assist you to overcome challenges, to seize initiatives and become highly successful. As I say over and over and over again, one of the most important things you need to do is listen to segments like this, but also to um, get books of, uh, on business people and how they've managed to succeed. And more importantly, surround yourself with mentors. Get people that have been there, done that, that represent various aspects of business and people who are not going to be yes men, people who, you know, if you've got an idea and it really sucks, they're going to tell you. So, you know, a lot of people make the mistake of getting mentors that uh, are their best friends who don't want to upset them and everything's great until they go broke. So my guest today, this guy's had a phenomenal career when you listen in a second to what he's what he's achieved, but he's the president of Sayara, which we'll find out all about in a minute, and he's responsible for all customer-facing operational aspects of the company globally, including, you know, marketing, business development, sales and pre-sales, professional services, all the stuff that goes with, um, with being a great marketing guy and, uh, He's also responsible for customer satisfaction. And as we know, one of the most important things in business today is great, not great, awesome customer service and being a great community citizen. 
and he's based in the heart of Silicon Valley. Now, James started his career at Apple. He probably had millions of shares, which he sold for huge amounts of money and lives in this massive mansion. But he, he later moved on to Concentric Network, a company he helped grow from $2 million to $300 million a year revenue. Now, that's pretty good, huh? And then, following a successful IPO and a successful public company merger for $2.9 billion, that's $2,900,000 million, James moved to Danger Inc., an SAS-based mobile platform for mobile operators where he led the sales efforts which grew revenue from zero to $100 million before being acquired by Microsoft in a $500 million acquisition. He's got a history, hasn't he? He takes a company, builds it up in these huge sales, then flogs it off to somebody for an enormous amount of money. That's a pretty good deal. He's obviously got knows, knows his way around the block. Uh, James then joined 41st Parameter as the EVP of Sales, Business Development and Customer Operations, growing revenue at 40% a year before a successful sale. Here we go again to Experian for $325 million. Now, that is a bloody impressive record. I didn't add up all those numbers. I meant to add them up, but it, it turns out to be a shitload of money, right? <laughs> James, welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. You're being heard right around the world. So, <laughs> before we start, well, first of all, tell us what um, what Sayara is, your, your new business that you're about to build into some astronomical sales and flog off to somebody. Bob, thanks uh, for the introduction. I, I have to say, I think I want a tape of that playing every morning when I, <laughs> I wake up brushing my teeth and just listen to, you know, I, I sound you I, <laughs> I just have to play that again and again. Um, but then, no, thanks for the introduction. And uh, so Ciara, the company I joined, which um, recently is a company which validates, designs, tests, and gives you uh, basically assurance that your customer support and customer experience infrastructure is operating. So this means all the ways that you would interact with the company through a telephone call to your uh, to whoever you want to get support from, a web chat, an email, an SMS. We test every single corner and crevice of it and make sure it works well. And so our customers um, tend to be larger companies who want to be excellent at basically customer experience. It's really, it's really interesting because when you when you initially I, – I do consulting for corporations and when you go in and you speak to them about touch points, you know, you need to make every touch point a wow no matter what it is. And most people seem to think that, you know, straight off the bat they think of three or four – in actual fact, most companies, when you take into account delivery, when you take into account repairs or whatever it is, many companies can have a dozen touch points, can't they? And they forget about most of them. But all you need is some guy to walk in to fix your computer with his bum crack showing and it destroys the whole um, image of the company, doesn't it? No, absolutely. I mean, there's a lot that you have to get right if you want to be great at customer experience. You have to have superbly trained CSRs, customer support reps. Yep. You have to have good policies. So, so, so for example, let's say a customer's irate and 
you need to expedite a return. That's, you have to have a good policy in place. So there's just many, many things you have to do. The, the place where we really help companies is making basically sure that the plumbing, the underlying plumbing of the infrastructure, your IVR, your phone system, your web chat, particularly the digital um, attributes of all that, are functioning and are rock solid. And so, we'll, you know, we have some customers that have, you know, 60,000 people answering the phone worldwide. And so you want to make sure. They're all in India, right? <laughs> no, actually, um, you'd be surprised. They're actually quite distributed now. In fact, yeah, you'll find yeah. people um, in just different parts of the states basically using an iPhone in their home office as part of a contracted customer support um, sure, element. Sure. But, but just to close on the point, there's a, as you just said, there's, there are uh, you know, dozens of touch points. The place where we help them most is we make sure the underlying customer support and CX infrastructure is functioning, working, tested, and will be rock solid in the event of, you know, let's say you had a surge of phone calls or that kind of thing. How much of how much of great customer service is having that infrastructure right to be able to address it, and how much of that is having great people? It's, you know, it's it's it seems to me that people need to be involved in customer service using the term very broadly, um, need to have a good personality, need to have, be empathetic. And when you go out in the community, there's damn few people that are empathetic and there's even fewer that have a good personality. So how do you, you know, if you've got 60,000 people, how do you find the right people? So, yeah, it's a really good question. So, the the, the again, the place we focus most is the, the kind of the sine qua non without which there is nothing – if, if the phone system is not working, if web chat is not working, yep. Yep. even if you have the most dedicated, uh, you know, CSR there. But, you know, the, the, it's, a re- it's an excellent question. I, I, I think behavioral interviewing is a lot, is helpful um, in this where you're, you basically go eye to eye with the people. Sure. And see, are they engaged? Do they make eye contact with you? Are they responsive, et cetera? And, you know, there are companies that are excellent at this. Apple Computer, go to a genius bar at your local Apple Computer Store. It's, they are fantastic. It's, it's stunning experience. Yeah, People they are. They can well trained. They know the product, and they have you know they they adjust or modulate their level of speech depending on you know is it a sophisticated customer or is it somebody who perhaps knows you know is less technical. You know that, yeah. but they interview for that and they look for that kind of uh, I would just say you know super uh, you know interactive skills. Yeah, they're really good at it. Everybody, as long as I can ever remember, going back to the old days, pre-digital, everybody was talking about, you've got to have awesome customer service. And we've been talking about that now for 40 years at least. And yet in the main, customer service sucks. Um, Retail's a great example. Um, It's dreadful and some of the phone companies <laughs> are not good at this so why is it that we've been talking about it for 40 years and yet it's still lousy you know it's it really interesting i'll share some statistics with you so um when you poll like major fortune 500 companies 80 percent of them will respond as the executive teams will respond and say we deliver great customer service 80 yep. percent it's a self-evaluation 
But when you ask their customers, only 8% will respond and say, yes, I'm getting great in the customer service. Yeah, I was going to bring that up with you, yeah. Yeah, I mean, but this is, so this is data that's available in the industry right now. That's a, that's a wide divergence. So increasingly, you know, over the last, you know, decade, 15 years, you see different measurements coming out. One is net promoter score, NPS. It just takes like, uh, uh, think of it as like a, a stack bar graph. Do 70% of your people, of your customers, Rep, uh, recommend your product and your company, or is it only 30%? And how many people are net negative and will actively yeah. say negative things about your company? So now, you know, we see, you didn't see this 20 years ago, but now there's popular ways of measuring this. You'll see this even put into the bonus structure of senior executives. And I think there's a new consciousness now uh, that basically your customers and your allegiance and loyalty to that customer is one click away from being lost. If yep. you have a bad order experience, bad customer interaction, they can drop your site or your service and go somewhere else. I think it's the sheer, like, you know, frictionless nature of, like, doing business now that's gotten people you know, more and more conscious of it. And also, if that person leaves you and they're really pissed off, they take they can take 10,000 people with them if they want to be vehement enough, can't they? Yeah. Again, I'll, I'll share some uh, statistic with you. Yep. 86% of people leave you will never tell you they were upset with you. 86%. So yep. most of the time, it, again, threading it back to your the other question you asked, I think there's first like uh, just pure information that one needs about, you know, what is the actual state of what your customers think about you? And then there's just, I think, you know, some recognition on part of the executive's you know, realizing it. But I think it's a changed world. It's really the last 10 years or so with just the, the fluidity with which a customer can leave you and go someplace else has gotten so, uh, you know, extraordinary that our, our customers are paying more attention now. Yeah, there, there were some figures put out by the Rockefeller Institute that said that 64% of customers leave um, doing business with somebody because they felt that the that the company didn't give us stuff about them you know so 64 percent out of 100 only nine percent of people leave a company or stop doing business with a company because they go to a competitor voluntarily nine percent and yet 64 percent leave because they don't believe the company gives us stuff about them and yet most companies focus on that nine percent you know how do we stop our, our customers from going to the competition and that's not their problem that's right. Yeah. Their problem's a lousy service. So, you know, it's interesting. So, the, the, again, the place where Ciara focuses is I'll call it just you – know, I'm, I'm using this term, the infrastructure, CX infrastructure. You, you have to make sure your phone answering works. You have to make sure if you're trying to contain the customers uh, and satisfy and delight them with just a phone call – you have to make sure it's all working correctly. And you'd, you'd actually be stunned at how often we find errors and mistakes in like what's called the IVR or the voice response. You know, just there's just flat out mistakes, meaning you'll have four choices. Please press one, two, three or four. You press one of them and it goes into a black hole. So what Ciara does is we constantly test, validate and monitor this. And so yep. for yep. a lot of our customers, um, you know, they, they want to be great at like making a car. Or they want to be great at banking, or they want to be great at you know fill in the blank, and the cus- the development that goes into the customer experience and customer support infrastructure may be a little less priority 
than building a great car, than you know, doing the following. So it's kind of been this afterthought. And yeah. one of the things what we find is we can we can help basically validate and make sure it's functional and operational every day. And then that allows to some extent, you know, frankly, it allows the vice president of customer experience or the CMO to go work on other things that they have to, like finding those great CSRs, interviewing people to and having the right policies on whether it's return or, or customer delight. That's the place where CR helps the most. It's that confirmation of the infrastructure's operational. You've got a fantastic record in um, sales growth and then acquisition. Um, what do you attribute? Are you just lucky or is there <laughs> something genius about you that that has these successes one after another after another? So what have you got that all these other people out there don't have? Well, it's about very flattering, Bob, to say that. But, you know, it, it's not – me or just me. It, every single one of these cases, it's been a team. Right. And yeah. I, I played one position, um, you know, to, you know, of course, use the baseball analogy. Somebody's got to be shortstop. Somebody's playing second base. You, know, you, you need to situate yourself with great people. There's no, there's nothing more important than be. And then, you know, building that super tight circle of trust where, you know, you are brothers and sisters in arms. So, I mean, so I, I appreciate the compliment, but I, if I walked through every one of the companies that you just described, I could talk about all the fantastic team members that were part of it. So that's really number one. I think perseverance, you know, when you were saying in your opening um, comments about, you know, you'd like to help your audience understand, I think perseverance, I, and again, if I were to describe some of the details of the companies that we just talked about, each one of them had, you know, their stare into the abyss <laughs> moments where it was unclear, you know, if, if we were going to make it through kind of an existential survival moment, either, you know, we got some decision wrong or we're yeah. short on cash or whatever. So it's perseverance through that. I think um, domain knowledge and getting to be an expert in your arena. So, again, if I were to walk through all those companies, including Ciara, at Ciara, we have people, particularly in the engineering team, who are the best in the world at this this chosen activity. So right. improving your own knowledge um, um, and, you know, I, I think of myself as a lifelong learner. And I think if you if you want to be sequentially successful, and I, I just don't mean topically, but but learning more things about the sales craft. I, I look yeah. at it, so I'm like, what else can I learn on this? And, you know, et cetera. And I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go back to the team comment. I had I had a mentor who said something to me I've never forgotten. He's a CEO, successful CEO. And, and uh, I was talking about different members of my team. And... Uh, very interesting fellow. Um, he's an immigrant uh, to this country. He's very successful. And he, he looked at me and he, having breakfast with him one day. He said, James, you're talking to me about your various team members. Would you go tiger hunting with these guys? I said, what did you mean? And he said, you know, tiger hunting in the jungle. It's like the tiger could jump out at any second and kill you. Like, who do you want at your back? Are these the guys? And I've never forgotten the expression. It's like when you go build a business like this, it's all consuming. It's 24-7. Um, you want to be with people that you want at your back that you'd go tiger hunting with and yeah. going to protect you. So those are the things that I think about. And, and, and yes, I've been very blessed and lucky um, uh, on the teams I've gotten to work with. Um, but it's all the things I talked about and, and the perseverance and team and 
improving your topical knowledge? I think that's one of the very important things. I was reading some figures the other day that said that 90% of business executives in the United States, um, and this is not comparing the United States with anyone, just talking about the United States, 90% do not have any additional learning experience after they finish college. They finish college and that's where it stops. Um, You know, they may go to the odd um, convention, but um, as a person who speaks at a lot of conventions, um, particularly, say, in Vegas, um, if you've got the first um, presentation up in the morning, there isn't anybody there. (laughs) So they're not that eager to learn. Um, But so when you talk about continuing your education, um, it doesn't have to be formal. Is that um, is that a mixture of sort of conventions and reading the trades and making sure that you stay abreast of um, everything that's going on in your business or across the board? So, yeah, I think it's um, the formalized things for sure. But I'll, I'll give you an example of what I'm doing right now. I, I have a, an executive peer group. It's a structured group of um, other you know, chief operating officers, CEOs. Um, it's a small group. It's moderated. There's a rigorous process. Um, we get together once a month and work through, each person works through uh, a particular um, structured process to solve a business problem. Right. And right. it's a place where, as they say, it's lonely at the top, quote unquote. You know, this is a place where you can go and be very open and work through things. I've yep. gotten yep. a ton out of that. I'm, I'm with a peer group that's teaching me. And so I think, you know, there's structured things like that you can do. And then Definitely. Um, so at Ciara, we have something called Ciara Academy. We we have a whole bunch of courses to train our sales engineers, actually to train our partners. You know, right. I'm marching myself through every single one of those courses. So I think you, you have to do, you know, the, the structured kind of things because it's too easy to get lazy. And it's a stunning statistic you shared with us. It's too easy to just, you know, give up on that. I, I think you have to put the extra effort to put some structure around it and, and force yourself into it. Yeah, a lot of a lot of executives um, are around my age, being a lot older than you, I think. But um, you know, they did their degrees in the fifties or the sixties, and <laughs> I hate to tell you, but the world's changed since then. So whatever you learned in the fifties and the sixties is not going to do you any good now at all. I mean, you'd be lucky no. if you can talk to your kids. <laughs> No, it's so true. You know, the statistics you hear that like half of the jobs that are going to exist in 2035 are in industries that have not yet been invented. You hear yep. statistics you know, like that. So when you think about um, when I got out of college, you know, the Internet did exist, but it was like, you know, government and university, you know, or with whatever, you know, 20,000 people on a right. Sure. Carbon dating myself um, right there <laughs> on, on age. But so. You know, whole industries that I've operated in did not exist when I graduated from college. Sure. So if you don't have an act, an, uh, an attitude of, I'm going to be a lifelong learner, I'm going to learn, you know, there's something you can learn from every single person you interact with, but that also I'm going to put some structure around it. We, we, um, we have a gentleman in our office, who's our product management leader, MIT grad, you know, he's probably 20 years out of college. He's taking a machine learning class on the side. Again, just to like very this, smart. Yeah, it's just terrific, and it actually very smart. CR, it's highly relevant as we get into data analytics, as we get into you know um, customer support delivered through AI and bots. He's going to know it. 
Yeah. So, you know, he went to, again, a highly prestigious university, MIT, right? But he's not idle. He's continuing to learn. So I, I think um, it's easy to get comfortable. And I think if um, I sort of, I would say, you know, put myself in places where um, I'm almost forced to learn. And then you can do the structured things and, and you know, you continue to grow. It's just, it's a, it's a terrific thing. Okay. You're a company out there and you're, you know, you produce a great product, but you haven't been paying very much attention to customer experience. If you're providing customers with a bad experience, how can that hurt your business? In what ways can it hurt your business? So, you know, did, you know perhaps returning to some of the statistics we were saying before, we've got yeah. a bad customer experience. Customers will leave with, with never telling you, um, which is is about the worst gift that they can that they can give you. And you know, it's funny. I, so I've been at, with the company about five months, and and you know, at first, you know, I thought of this as mostly it's a, a technical software platform sale. We're going to help your CX infrastructure work well. What I've discovered at the end of you know, five months of being here, what we actually sell is brand assurance, meaning. Right. You know, Mr. or Ms. CMO, guess what? We're going to make sure all of the infrastructure and the plumbing is working well. You can go work on the higher order things. And you can have assurance that you're not going to have a collapse situation, you know, um, because of that. And so that's that's kind of how we see ourselves help at a higher level. You're not going to have to worry about, you know, I'll call it the lowest level of Maslow's hierarchy. Yeah. You can work on those higher order problems. How do you get great CSRs? What's the right script? What's the right policy on on returns and add-on sales and, you know, all that stuff, which is um, both fun to work on and is also highly significant. So I'm out there. I'm a CEO. I've got a company and I don't think we're doing um, customer service and our backup. We don't think – I don't think we've got all that in place. So I call Ciara. Um, how do you start? What's the process to um, get into a company? So no, it's a really good question. So we we have um, what we call the customer experience maturity profile. It's like a left to right, starting at you know the company may be um, let's just say immature or have weak muscle fiber around delivering a good customer experience, and we can tell pretty quickly. We have some diagnostic tools that we can exercise at very quickly and tell you like, okay, here's a number of things we found even before we've installed any software or done anything else. So we start with kind of a a diagnostic, if you will, which is here's where you are. And some people may start their, um, the customer experience is actually a differentiating attribute and they're just killer, you know, good at it. When they may be at the, we'll call it the lower left end of the spectrum where they haven't developed the muscle fiber. So step one, the diagnostics, we figure out where they are. And then the second part is really, you know, kind of a, it's a series of conversations. We're like, how much willingness do you guys have? And are you ready, you know, to be great? And we sort of gear the level of engagement. We have something we call our domain consulting group. Right. By that we mean we have um, some people who are now, we've been doing this for 10 years, who are experts at the domain of customer experience. And we ask a series of really pretty uh, both granular tactical kinds of things and then strategic things. How important is customer experience to you? And then we also deduce not just the platitudes, but like, what are you willing to do? So after we've done that diagnostic, where you are, then where do you intend to be? With that point, we design basically the program and, and we can, 
we can get going in 30 days, 60 days with a you know committed um, company, and then over the course of so 90 to 120 days, we can have a lot of things improve, you know, et cetera. But those are the basic steps that we go through. So I'm a, I'm a company that's got 50 employees or 100 employees. What, the, what, what are the parameters of what's this going to cost me? I know that's how long is a piece of string. But yeah, yeah, that's, that's, that's a really good question. So <clears throat> we um, typically, most of our customers are Fortune 500, FTSE 100. They're large customers. Which you'll see us um, supporting, um, I'll call it the middle part of the market um, in the future through partners. But because of the nature of what we do, it tends to be a bigger ticket item. And um, usually um, the engagement on an annual basis is a six figure. Sometimes for large customers, it's a seven figure kind of. um, Now, for the market you just described, which I would call mid to to smaller end, sure. we're going to be addressing that in the future through some partners who more logically sell to it. And at that point, the the price point for it has to be uh, in consonance, or or it has to make sense for somebody who's spending you know 50 employees. Think about what they spend on customer support. Think about what they spend on their phone system, and it has to be a product that's oriented towards that. Most of who we currently serve now is in the larger end of the market. And it's a again a, a six to seven figure kind of engagement. Okay, is it all automated? Is everything all your um, testing and implementation? Is it all automated or some of it yes, manual? That, that's the whole reason Detra of the company was really to automate testing and take the human drudgery out of it, and you know, frankly, get people great at customer experience. So. And then deliver that to customers, and then the rest of the planet can go off and do something, whatever else they want to do. We sure. save them time. But the whole reason Detra of the company is is uh, is automation. So we have um, a user interface where you can easily design a set of test scripts, and in in a matter of a couple days, design a couple hundred to a couple thousand test scripts, and then start running it on a completely automated fashion. Right. So that, that is our, our claim to fame. That's what we're really, really good at. And the, the, the savings for the customer comes in a couple places. Usually, when you see we run into a shop that's all manual, that is, they only do manual testing. What I mean by that is there's a human being hitting the keyboard with their fingers and saying, let me type this in. Now let me try this one. Let me try this one. So typically, at best, they will test about 10% of the code. That is, that's in your right. voice response system, et cetera. So what we can do with automation is take this up to 80, 90, and 100%. So now you're testing all of it, usually with the exact same number of people. So right. your same number of people are doing a lot more. You're finding all these problems in development instead of in once you've shipped it into production. So automation is what we're about. Take the human drudgery out of it. And humans make mistakes. Um, James, what's next on the horizon for you? You're just hanging around until they sell out for some astronomical amount of money, then you got to go on to the next one. <laughs> you know, I, this is a great job. This has been a total gas. Um, the, the, uh, this company has got great product, great product to market fit, great people. I think the next stage of the company, there's almost like a, an industry-changing data analytics product. And what I mean by that is 
we have all these customers in utilities and banking and insurance um, <clears throat> and, and different kind of consumer electronics. So we have all this information about how good or not is the customer experience across right. the entire planet, frankly. And so I see a future around this, around data analytics, where we can give, we can basically get to a point where we can tell a customer, hey, you, you're not as good as your five competitors. Of course, you have to respect the proprietary nation of sure. uh, sure everybody's information. But you'd be able to say like, you know, on a scale of one to 10, you're a 5.5 and your, your industry segment's at an 8.5 and start really helping people benchmark where they are. And so I see a, a, a lot of distance with this particular company and, and I'm having an absolute gas. This is total That's fun. great. James? Thanks very much for speaking with me on the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Now, you can find out more about Sayara, which is C-Y-A-R-A at Sayara.com. And I'll be back with more of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show and Voice America Business Network after this short break. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking Absolutely no bullshit business radio show on Voice America Business Network. And we're coming to you today from the entertainment and technology hub of the world, the wonderful Los Angeles, California. Now, if you ask somebody a question, you expect their response to be truthful, unless, of course, you happen to be speaking to the President of the United States. But it turns out that changing the way you phrase a question can affect whether pe- whether people answer honestly or whether they conceal the truth. A study published in the journal Organisational Behaviour and Human Decision Processes tested how question phrasing influences how people respond in competitive settings such as negotiations or job interviews. You know, in those situations, people are strategic about what information they choose to reveal. In one study, participants were asked to sell a used electronic device to a fictitious buyer. Participants were told that the device had frozen in the past and had lost all stored music. A very serious problem that any buyer would want to know. But whether they shared that information depended on the type of question they were asked. So when buyers inquired, What problems does it have? 90% of sellers answered truthfully and mentioned the history of crashing. However, when they are asked the more polite and less assertive question, it doesn't have any problems, does it? Only 60% of sellers mentioned that the device had crashed. But when buyers asked them the general question, What can you tell me about it? Only 8% of sellers disclosed the truth about the device's history of crashing. 
So big difference between 90% owning up and 8% owning up. So sellers regarded those who ask what problems does it have as the most knowledgeable and assertive and therefore they were more likely to tell the truth because they thought they might get caught out. When asked presumptive questions such as, in a typical week, you'd occasionally use work time for personal email or social media, right? Job candidates were more likely to admit to unprofessional behaviours like gossiping about co-workers or using work time for personal email and social media. But when asked more general or less presumptive questions, participants kept this information to themselves. So why do people resolve, respond so differently depending on how questions phrased? Presumptive questions communicate that the questioner already knows something. So it's best to come clean and at least tell your side of the story by disclosing the information rather than be found to be lying. In a job recruitment study, employees were given a detail about the company's history and current programs. When asked a presumptive question, participants often admitted there had been complaints for example, junior level associates feeling abused. But they then went on to explain that such abusive practices were typical in the industry or they pivoted to a discussion of solutions that the company had started to implement. So they were ducking and dodging. But when questions are more general or less presumptive, Respondents figure that the questioner is not comfortable pursuing that information and so they just simply change topics without getting caught. For example, when asked a general question about the corporate culture in that same recruitment study, many resp respondents ignored the far more relevant complaints of abuse and dodged the question and excitedly talked about casual jeans Friday around the office. It was easier to talk about that than it was to own up to any problems. So if you're worried about a potential problem, ask about it directly, even to the point of directly asserting that the problem exists and asking if the respondent will contradict you. Yeah, that'll probably feel confrontational. Nobody likes to feel confrontational. But research shows that such questions will demonstrate that you're both smart and assertive. And you're likely to get a much more honest response. Now remember, if you're not living on the edge, you're taking up too much space. Get out of the way and let somebody with ambition and drive that wants to succeed get past you. You know, it's easier and it's much more rewarding to do the impossible than it is to do the ordinary. If you're always trying to be normal, you'll never know how amazing it can feel 
to be different or how amazing you can be by being by being different. Now, I hope you can join me again next Tuesday. Well, I'll again be broadcasting from our studio in Hollywood Boulevard in Los Angeles where the weather's always beautiful and the entrepreneurs just keep pumping out great products. In the meanwhile, continue to be successful because the alternative to success really sucks. This is Bob Pritchard. You've been listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Please join us again next Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then, enjoy another week of success in your business and your life.